welcome to episode 68 of the Great Divide podcast, which has the second part of the interview we did with Tony Butler. We're going to go straight into it. Hope you like it. So I guess, uh, Tony, you must have been very surprised when I wrote to you some years ago and said, we actually spent four hours pouring over the Great Unknown album. Well, do you know what? See, that would have shocked me because <laughs> I wasn't in the kind of headspace that I was in now. I, I did the Great Unknown because of two things. One, it's, it was kind of just around the time when, you know, the whole idea of Big Country was kind of looking like it was a has-been and and uh, the new wave bands were coming through and, you know, and things went great for us as a, as a band. And um, I just took the uh, opportunity that a friend of mine uh, who lived in Cornwall had a studio and I thought, well, let's, let's, let's try doing some stuff. And I did, but it was a very half-hearted thing. But I, I, I remember reading some sleeve notes the other day that uh, I, I, I wrote down this album is about me being every band that I've ever wanted to yeah. be in. And I, and I think that's kind of, kind of true how I looked at it. I didn't look at it as a real professional thing. And again, at that time, because Big Country was the, the, the main event in our lives, Ian didn't want me to take it too seriously either because, you know, he wanted me to keep focused on the band. Mm. Don't start thinking about splitting away and doing stuff when, you know, the band needs to be revived in some particular way. And I acknowledge that. And, you know, it was nice for me to sort of just take a little strike out and have a, a, a go at it. And uh, it, it was an interesting to, interesting thing to do. But um, Life Goes On was, was, again, the second part of me having a, a little go and seeing if I was capable of doing it. Because by that time... You know, I had my own little studio, as I said, in my house, and I was recording some really nice local bands because I had my little record label at the time. Yeah. And I had this band called Pelt, who were from Falmouth in, in uh, deep, uh, Deepest Cornwall. And they're a fantastic bunch of people led by two sisters. And I adored their voices. I could listen to them sing. I would, uh, you know, go to sleep just listening to their, their voices. <laughs> and uh, I just... I then found it so unfair when I tried to get people interested in in them. But number one, they liked the music, but when they saw photographs of them, they just turned off. And I just thought, why do I want to be part of an industry that's you know uh-huh. you can sound great, but if you look rubbish, then then they're not interested. And that's you know that's when I first realised that the music business was going through a really bad revolution. Uh, this was sort of pre Simon Cowell, but you know it just got from bad to worse. But yeah. me as a musician. Uh, it was just a, it was a confusing time. You know, I was a support writer. I wrote lots of melodies. I sat with Stuart in, in many um, situations, just the two of us sort of jamming, coming up with an idea, putting it in the bank, presenting it to guys, expanding it. And that was my role. You know, I didn't write songs as such. But it's not until I started The Great Unknown that I really sort of started to look, yeah, can I do this? Can I, can I have a go at this? And, uh, you know, I, I, I built up the confidence to do it, which is why I'm where I am now. But, yeah, The Great Unknown was just every band I wanted to be in. Yeah, and we actually had a lot of fun trying to guess who these bands are. And we had some deep discussion amongst all the fans. So I was actually going to ask you yeah. if you remember who you're trying to be, perhaps starting with uh, at the beginning with The Great Unknown song. 
Well, I kind of considered myself the great unknown, to be honest. <laughs> so, so that was the actual solo track. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, yes, I was known for being in a band. I was known for doing some sessions with some notable people. But me as a person, I was kind of an unknown. I kind of thought that was a kind of nice little tongue-in-cheek to, you know, a, a way of viewing myself. <laughs> but, again, I, thought, I think it was down to the state of the band. You know, I'm going back to the great unknown. Life was life seemed rosy, and then life didn't seem rosy, and life looked like it was going to get difficult. And going back to the abyss, you know, starting anew or whatever, was particularly how I felt at the time. And uh, but it was more about the fact that I was introducing myself as an artist, which right. is kind of more behind the, the lyric. And that's also one of the more big country-sounding songs on the album. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was about this time that I was beginning to sort of transfer a lot of the stuff that I was doing on bass onto guitar and then expanding from there. I mean, I've always played guitar and chords and stuff, but it's because of what I sort of developed as a bass style throughout, you know, the, the, the country years, you know, particularly from Steeltown onwards, that um, I started sort of transferring some of those ideas onto, onto, onto guitar and sort of really sort of expanding on them. Mm. So, yeah, right. And then, but I mean, for me, the greatest mix of guitar styles was kind of that two-note style mixed with a bit of Townsend chucked in as well. So nice. yeah. that's, that's how I've kind of developed my ideas of guitar playing. Well, your bass on Steel Town is really like another lead guitar in some yeah. instances. It's incredible. And that's by design. Uh, you know, it was really an opportunity for us to orchestrate not just two guitars, but three Wow. And really develop them, not only in terms of musicality, but also in overdubbing. Um, I mean, uh, what's the track? Girl with Sad Grey Eyes. Yes. I mean, basically that track was me sitting up one night because everybody else had gone out and I just sat in the studio and, and you know, I had 24 tracks and I was going to fill them all up. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, uh. next morning... And Stuart came in and said, oh, that's nice. I said, would you like to put a little bit of guitar on? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. A little bit never never uh, applies to Steel Town, does it? Are you sure yeah. there's only 24 tracks on that thing? Well, that's all I had, I, 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 that's all I had for me in the studio I was in. I, it's normally 48, but I thought 24 was <sighs> it. You know, Steel Town often gets a bad rap for, for the overdubs, but... That's. I think that's why so many of, of the fans hold it in such high regard. I've never heard an album that sounds even remotely like that one. I mean, if, if you ever listen to that in headphones, just to pick out all the different parts, yeah. for me, they it's it's just it's orchestral almost. It's it's well, I, I, I would use the word more symphonic because I think the okay, way that's that the guitars kind of elevated themselves and then developed as overdubs and and contra melodies and all that kind of stuff it was becoming symphonic but to add that aspect to the bass as well you know you could put some really deep background bass going on in the front and some very piccolo type 
melodies in the, in, in the foreground. And when they're all interweaving as counterpoints within a song, you know, it, it does become quite symphonic. And I think uh, that really sort of excited Lillywhite because, you know, the, the, the louder you can make a track, the better it is for him. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Sir Steve. <laughs> We've been trying to get Steve on the show. He he acknowledged us, but he has not yet committed. So we'll see. Well, I would say, Sir Steve Lily White, get your ass on this program. Get <laughs> your side. <laughs> we figured he he's t- he spent so much time talking about the crossing. We really wanted to spend a lot of time just talking about Steel Town because that's yeah. yeah. Another very interesting track from uh, the greater known is Living Side by Side. Uh, what can you tell us about that one? I think this, as with a couple of other songs, is the fact that it was me really enjoying living in the, in the Cornish countryside. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I'm a great one for dogs, dog walking. I love sort of going into the rough parts of Cornwall and walking through you know the, the 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 rough lands that we've got especially around beaches and stuff and uh you know it wasn't me being much of a hippie but just the idea that you know our environment so plays on our well-being our way of thinking and stuff and but the metaphor was you know as as we have to live with nature we have to live with each other mm-hmm. and and that's kind of where the sort of idea of living side by side comes uh, yeah, the line honeybees and wild red roses is just, it's Cornwall for me. And it's got this great metaphor, and, you know. And you got to—I I don't know how much you can appreciate that. Um, there's not many black people living in Cornwall, and I—I I found myself being totally accepted by you know the communities that I lived in, and that was very, very important for me when it came to sort of thinking about how we live together in this world, and uh, and how different I felt things were in a, in a, in a county like Cornwall as opposed into the bigger cities where that kind of harmony with nature and each other doesn't really work. And I think, unfortunately, we're still seeing that horrific aspect now. Right. And did, and did you try to write that song as a specific band? Um, no, I don't no. know. <laughs> <laughs> Lost um, in the mists of time. Well, again, it's, it's, it's just big jangly chords, so there's got to be Townsend in there somewhere. <laughs> I've always played the A chord the way that he was, which I think is the most sort of brilliant way of playing an A chord on a guitar because it just screams at every note of the scale and you've got a lovely low bass note and you've got an extremely good high note on the fifth fret. And it's a great way of playing that A chord and uh, that's I centre a lot of my writing around that. Right. Uh, I know you told in the past that a song like uh, Oblivion Road, that was you trying to write a song for, for the U. Yeah. And I always thought that this man has got to be to have the greatest cajones to write a song for Pete Townsend, <laughs> the master songwriter. <laughs> but it really sounds like that. And they possibly never heard it, which was just possibly okay. No, I, I, you know, you've got to kind of put yourself into a position of 
you know, writing for yourself is always a nice thing. But as I said, I'm, I've never been the most self-centered person. And I like to think that I could write songs for other people or yeah. write songs that other people can sort of kind of relate to other things. But, you know, I think with the sentiment of the song also deals with the fact that we get dark periods in time and are possibly quite prophetic in its way because I feel Stuart went down Oblivion Road and never came back. Yeah. I think it was kind of unknowingly prophetic in that particular way. But, uh, yeah, I thought that who could do make me quite rich by doing that, but it didn't happen. So <laughs> <laughs> it was a nice shot. It was a nice shot. It was a nice shot, yeah. yeah. It is one well, of I, my favorites. I, got, I, got, um, I had a Schecter, which um, I was given many, many years ago. And, you know, you can't help but put a guitar like that around your shoulder and, and just turn it up and just feel the energy of the man. So... about that album and, and you mentioned it a little bit was was your guitar playing i mean it really did it it almost felt like there was a Stuart influence on your playing well, is that accurate or is that something that you were just uh, had were, were intentionally trying to do on certain tracks and not others but i mean no, your lead playing it was and it, it was just a total influence because i so adored his style and, you know, it was the only way that I was going to learn to maybe develop a guitar style of my own is by kind of getting into the mindset of of what he did. I mean, a lot of my influence about Stuart's guitar playing wasn't what he did really with the early stages of big country. It's what he did with the skids. Mm. And, you know, his, his, his the, the, the idea of writing such brilliant melodies that scream on a guitar... You know the, the the sounds and everything. You know the bagpipe, the bagpipe guitar sound thing. That wasn't that didn't interest me. It was just a me- melody construction with a cranked up guitar, just screamed at me, and I wanted to to do that. I wanted melodies to scream at you. So yeah, I mean, I took a lot from him. I I won't apologize for that. No, you but, shouldn't. That's great. But I hopefully sort of developed a slightly different style myself, but. You know, I was incorporating, as I said, ideas that I was putting into bass and then putting them onto guitar because I used to write a lot of stuff on bass, which then I just transferred to guitar to to give the the guys an idea of where I was going with with stuff musically. So I would do demos, possibly as bass to start off with, and then sort of just expand them a little bit with the guitars. And they'll go, okay, I mean, a track called Remembrance Day Mm. came, came out of that. You know, I, it was a, a song that was musically done by me, and 
and Stuart put the, the, the lyrics and melody on top, but everybody played what I did on my demos, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, yeah. That's, I, f- I found that was a great mechanism for me, but I never felt as though I was copying. I was just... Oh, just no, no, yeah. Specializing the influence as much as I could. Definitely. Absolutely. I saw yeah. some uh, reviews from the shows you did for The Great Unknown that you actually played guitar live. Is that something yes. you're considering for the upcoming shows as well? Yes. Purely and simply because ah. I'm, I'm going to be able to perform songs in the way that I want to. There are some songs I'm going to have to play sort of a rhythm guitar, and there, there are songs that I'll play bass. So. The, uh, one of the job spots I'm going to be looking for is somebody who plays guitar and bass as well. Oh, that's fantastic. I love it. Yeah. So I can interchange as well because, you know, I, I don't want to give up bass, but, you know, I've, I've got to kind of now think about how I present myself as a, a, as a singer, songwriter, and how I accompany myself. I mean, when I, when, when I did that little, the, the gigs that you refer to for, for The Great Unknown, I did it all with guitar using backing tracks, uh-huh. which was a strange con- concept, full stop, because I, I felt very uncomfortable with it. Not because I was playing guitar, but I was just on my own. And I really didn't like that. I, right. I just thought, in terms of performance, because you know, I, I keep a 360 vision of the whole thing. And in terms of performance, I just thought that, was, that wasn't right. So I didn't pursue that. And I latterly put together a little band of musicians that I'd been nurturing uh, in the Cornwall area and did another short tour with it, which I really enjoyed because I felt some energy behind me. And I had a drummer, another guitarist. I was playing a bit of bass, playing a bit of guitar. And it was just nice to have that human interaction between people. So the idea of performing on my own was, oh, no, no. I didn't like it, so I didn't, wouldn't bother. But, you know... How people can just go on stage with a a, a backing track and just whoa. <laughs> yeah, <Check these. laughs> I agree. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's sweet. Okay, I'm not gonna labor on this album, and I just wanna mention that my favorite song is actually one of the more different songs, perhaps uh, a quieter song, and I just think it's so beautiful. The May Queen leaves a parade, and uh, I see that uh, tapping into exactly the same things you mentioned before. I, I see. Cornwall and uh, just serenity coming from that. This is this is quite funny, and I've only, I've only just remembered this because of how you've introduced this song. Okay, <laughs> wherever I used to live in this little village in Cornwall, it was called Alternun. So it's kind of a quaint villagey name, isn't it? Anyway, every year they they had um, a sort of parade, a little festival. And I lived in a house that was right in the centre of that little town. And my front garden was like like an acre, and but it led directly onto the street. So the, the local people said, you know, uh, we have this festival every year. Uh, do you mind if we put some stalls up in the garden and stuff like that? And we'd like to invite your daughter to be the May Queen. Hmm. And uh, I sort of said yes, but I didn't realise that my daughter would fucking hate me for the rest of my life. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> She hated it. Oh, she no. She sat on this, like, stall, with a horse-drawn stall, dressed up as a fairy, and the face <laughs> on it was just horrendous. And I just, she's made me feel bad about it ever since. Well, John but, does that every week, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am paying attention over here. I just, wanted to, I just wanted to see if he was still there. Sorry. Oh, I'm, oh, I'm still there. I'm uh... <laughs> Did not so go unnoticed. I, so I wrote this song 
which was kind of joking about that, but I kind of just did, I, I, it, it's basically, I just turned it into a song, which was just expunging my, my celebration of living in such a lovely place. And I think my wife was pregnant with uh, my youngest son. And the whole thing was just what people call idyllic. Mm-hmm. And it was a, such a lovely sort of area, place, time, and uh, the, that song just came because I was just totally happy. Let us watch the children dancing as they rejoice the end of spring. As we prepare for what the summer has to bring. As the church bells chime rings through the air. That would not have fit on the Steel Town album at all. No. <laughs> <laughs> Everything has its place, Thomas. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Well, are you doing okay on time, Tony? I'm great, yeah. Okay, great. I, I mean, I, do you mind if we throw, like, perhaps a few random questions your way from complete big country nerd, Tony Butler nerd type of fan questions? Is that okay? I'm, I'm, as I said, my shop's open. <laughs> okay, that's great. Well, well, here's this is kind of a selfish one for me because I, I've read some things about this in the past, but I never felt like I had a real great, um, I, I guess – explanation or description of what this must have been like and it's always been something that's interested me i'm i'm curious what that first meeting was like between you mark and Stuart and bruce and what the first uh maybe even what the first types of things that you guys played together were and just what that feeling was in the room when you first played together well I mean, obviously, I'd met Stuart before on the on the Skids tour when myself and Mark were part of a band called On the Air, which was uh, the guitarist and singer was um, Pete's younger brother, Simon, Simon Townsend. Yep. And we did that tour and we became great friends and we had quite a laugh with it. And um, I obviously, as I said earlier, I kind of I kind of thought of a future with myself being involved with Stuart. And, uh, and then... Um, Myself and Mark were playing with Pete Townsend at this festival in um, in London, which was the Gyro Right to Work March, uh, which culminated at a place called Brockwell Park in London. Mm-hmm. And um, we were uh, we were playing with Townsend.
we were playing the Townsend, but um, there was a band on the bill called The Members, which Ian Grant managed. And I kind of met Ian there and kind of got talking. And uh, we swapped numbers. And then I got a call from Ian saying, you know, would you Mark, be up for coming to do a session with a bunch of guys from Scotland? And, you know, well, I, I inquired after them. And as soon as, as soon as he mentioned Stuart's name, I was in. Bang. No problem. So I informed Mark we were going to a studio on a particular day. And we sort of, we, we met the night before we went to the studio. They were staying at a little hotel in Westbourne Park. And uh, we kind of met just to introduce ourselves and stuff. Stuart, obviously, because we'd known him from the tour, that was cool. But this other little entity was a nightmare. <laughs> Couldn't understand a word he said. <laughs> he had the thickest, deepest Scottish brogue. And, you know, I literally had to ask Stuart, what did he say? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we kind of got through the night and we had a drink and it was, you know, it was, it was, it was for fun. And we sort of pontificated about, you know, what we were going to do. to, And we listened to some demos that they had done. And, um, I think the first song I was played was a track called Heart and Soul. Mm. And I was just struck dumb by it. I just kind of thought, well, I've never heard anything like this. This is really different. And, but it was an early demo. And basically, I think the acid test was how myself and Mark would, you know, what, what would we bring to the party in this particular case? So we went into the studio the next day uh, at the phonogram studio in central London. Uh, the, and the guy who was working the desk uh, was uh, called Bland. I can't remember his first name, but he went on to become the manager of Stereophonics. Oh, wow. But he was our recording engineer for the day because he was a house engineer. So we all set up, and then, you know, this is literally the first time we played together, and we sort of just routine the tracks on the demos, and then we put them down. They went down really quickly. You know, Mark and myself kind of did our homework.
And as soon as we finish recording them and um, oh, I've forgotten the guy's first name, something bland, 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 bland. Anyway, it'll come to me. He um, he was then mixing the tracks and uh, we were just sort of sitting in the back you know, having a little giggle. And Ian walked in with Chris Briggs, who was the uh, A&R man for polyg- Phonogram at that time. And I, well, I didn't know that there was a little bit of a history, but Briggs came in with this big Cheshire grin sort of smile on his face. And um, he, uh, Ian announced that uh, he'd been given a contract, of which I just wet myself, you know. I thought, bloody hell, how can all this happen in a day? <laughs> but what I didn't know then was the backstory that um, the band had started in, in Dunfermline with some other guys. Yeah. And that band went on tour with Alice Cooper, <laughs> and then they got fired from their tour on the date. And Chris had seen them and said, and said to Ian, you know, the band could possibly work if the bass player and drummer were of a better uh, pedigree, of which is, this is now obviously how I know that Ian phoned me because obviously our meeting had perpetrated that. Uh, so that first day in the studio, um, we were, weren't a band and then we were a band. And Amazing. Then great friends. And I remember driving home in Mark's van, sort of really sort of, babbling about being, you know, being part of the band. And I, I don't think quite, Mark quite got it. So I had to persuade him a little bit that, you know, this is, we shouldn't, we should stop doing sessions because that's going nowhere. We should get involved in something that's really going to give us an opportunity to prove ourselves and do something that's worthwhile. Because don't forget, at the same time, I was kind of being lured into the pretenders. That's right. Yeah. Because um, I just, I just done this work with um, Chris Thomas for um, for the pretenders, um, you know, because of the unfortunate departures that they had at the time, and you know, um, James Hunnam Scott was a friend of mine. I used to go bowling with him down at the oh, wow. airport, and that was sad to hear him go. But uh, one I heard about the other guy going. It was just, and uh, the only reason I got the gig is because I just finished working with Chris on, on Empty Glass, the Townsend. So uh, I, I kind of looked at the pretenders and kind of, and I was a fan. Anyway, because I thought Chrissy Hine was amazing, and I still do. Yeah. Uh, but it, it was the kind of I had to I had to talk to myself and sort of say, if I was offered a, a job with a band full time, would I do that, or should I go with Big Country? But I kind of thought that Chrissy was such an established name in her own right by then that the band would never be a band; it would always be about Chrissy Hine, never never about what the band were in that respect, which is why I decided to go with, with, with Big Country, because there was more of an opportunity of having sort of parity in development, so to speak. It was the right choice, definitely. Oh, yeah, it was a great choice, but I, you know, I... I <laughs> Not that the other one was a bad choice, but it just... Yeah, the, the other choice was really, really had some good points. I mean, as I said, I don't know if I could have been in the band with, with a girl who I'd fancied the bands off. <laughs> that may not have worked very well, so... Uh, well, you know what's... What's funny is that your bass playing with the Pretenders, I, I'm, I, you're probably aware of this, but maybe you're not. It, it's, it can be heard every single day on American radio on, wow. a, on a conservative talk show host here. Mm-hmm. Um, his name is Rush Limbaugh, so I don't want to get into politics, but it's right. My City Was Gone is his theme. Right. And every single day you can hear that.
there's Tony Butler. He does his play well, today. Enough, because we were in this rehearsal studio in North London, and uh, we were waiting for Chrissy to turn up. And um, myself and, well, I started a riff. It's just something I had in my head. <laughs> it's so great. And, uh, and Martin just played a beat to it. And we were just sort of jamming on, just keeping ourselves occupied until Chrissy turned up. And she turned up and she just picked up a guitar and just joined in. <laughs> and uh, and the next minute, I know that this this is a song. At this time of my life, I had no idea about the music business. Mm. You know, music publishing and all this thing was just this vague concept that I had uh, had about it. And as far as I was concerned, even when the record was released, you know, it was a Chrissy Hines song because she put on a great you know, lyric and a great vocal on top. But when somebody said, you know, well, if you started that, you should get something for it. I have never pursued that and I never will. Simply, I loved what I did on that day and it became, and especially when I heard it, the, the, that track got actually flipped in America as a single. Oh, wow. So I, 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 the riches of that is the fact that I was part of that. I don't need any money. I, I'm, I wouldn't chase anybody for anything like that. Uh, that was just pure pride on my, heart, my behalf. Wow. Wow, fantastic! And as you say, you know, if this guy uses it as his theme, and you know, my 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 bass notes are resounding around the airwaves. Wow! And every day for the last twenty years, I think. I mean, that's how long this guy's been on the air. And, uh, I didn't know that before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not being horrible. It's just no. I, I it's totally nice get it. To know that what you do gets that kind of respect and stuff. It's just, it's what I've always wanted to be as a musician, to do something that's got that kind of respect. But I got it from one band, but I didn't know I was achieving it somewhere else. So. <laughs> you did, yes, yes. <laughs> I hope I didn't stir anything up there. <laughs> oh, no, no, not as I said, I, you know, I would never, ever go, I'm not a breadhead. Right. Uh, something that doesn't, you know, I'm not very good at. With it. And I, I play music for creativity. The fact that you get something for it, you know, through uh, royalties and stuff like that is a bonus and it helps one's life. But, you know, I'm not breadhead enough to, to go and sort of search for royalties that, you know, possibly could have come my way. But I don't care. It's not, right. it's not what I do. It's not why, why, what I, why I do what I do. I guess that's why you were once called the meanest man in rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> Give me the bread. Uh, oh I, I my think gosh. it's maybe the downfall of my life. I could be so much well better off, but... Uh, you know, if I ever thought about making money as the the, the vehicle for being a musician, I I, I think I'd just stuck to teaching. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, uh, there's no money in that either. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I hear. <laughs> yeah, so uh, no, uh, like, I, I I I love this old-fashioned sentiment of music and creativity is 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 fully rewarding. That's great. And, uh, and I, I and this I think it's. It's something that I will always look back with great fondness, the fact that I've had some association with somebody who I valued so much. You know, I said this, I said this to you earlier on. I've worked with some great people who have brought so much to me that money just couldn't pay for mm, right. at all. And I feel myself very lucky. I t- I get, I, now, this is what happened when I wrote my book. I just used to get these little stories pop up in my head. When I was working on um, Empty Glass of Pete, one night uh, a whole lot of people turned up and you know people that would normally dumbfound me anyway like Stephen Stills turned up and Adam Ant turned up and David Bowie turned up wow. and I'm like this little guy from Ealing and I'm doing this session at you know Air Studios in central London as it was then and they all decided to go out 
And uh, and I thought, well, maybe I'd better just pack my guitar away and go home. But I was invited to go, and we went to a place called the Embassy Club. And I remember being seated at this table, and there's all these rock and roll dignitaries sitting around this table, and I kind of felt like this, Jesus Christ, I'm here, what am I doing here with all these people? And these people would walk past the table because we were in this booth, and they were craning their neck, and you can sort of see them say, oh, look, there's David Bowie, oh, there's Pete Townsend, and look, Stephen Zell. Who's that? (laughs) (laughs) Who's he? I don't know who he is. (laughs) And that's how inferior I felt. But I was part, it was part of my my learning curve of life. And uh, I I took it all in, you know. I served my apprenticeship for pop stardom, I think, because I kind of knew how it worked before I got there myself. So, Oh, that's great. Yeah, definitely. That's not in my book, by the way. (laughs) Oh, excellent. It's a scoop for us. Yeah, that's a free one for you. <laughs> it's such an amazing thing to hear you talk about that and working with pretenders. And you mentioned your record company in Cornwall before. Uh, yeah. Those are great stories. Uh, is there a chance they will show up in a book someday? Or, you know, th- these things have got to be told. It's amazing stuff. I, I don't know. Part of me thinks that, you know, when, I'm, when I feel right about things... I'm happy to talk about things, but if, if 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 it doesn't feel right, I won't. I won't talk about them or or use them as anecdotes or just you know this the whole concept about writing things down. I think I've only done that because I'm my age. Yeah, and I'm I I feel as though you know my years of teaching, I've become a lot more articulate about what I am and what I do and how I see things. And, you know, my, it's, it's really helped me focus in that respect. So writing is something that I've acquired and feel that I could develop if I've got something to write about. I've never been a great storyteller in terms of my life and what I've done and all the great things that I've done because I was never ever quite sure that people would be really that interested. But, you know, your enthusiasm for, for my stories, you know, it might kick something into touch in the future. <laughs> I don't know. It depends on how long I live, really, because, uh, you know, I've, I've started something which could be quite good for me at a late age. And, you know, if I, if, if I put myself through the punishing period of, of, of promoting this album that I really want to, maybe if I come out the other side still ambitious, I would probably do something like that. But, and, you know... I need to be incentivized as well to do things because I just absolutely yeah. I've got somebody who thinks I can just foist myself on on people because I've done something. If there's an appetite for it, then maybe I, I might look sort of kindly on it, especially if it inspires me. Yeah. So, so the best way to look at this is a start, and if people like it and want the other stuff, they should uh, give you the kudos and encouragement, and maybe it will come. Oh, that, that that would be fantastic, as I say, because I'm not doing it for money, so I might as well do it for some reason. Mm. So, uh, yeah, yeah, but, you know, I'm, I think one of the things that you would have discovered here that it's taken me a long time to find my own feet, but that's because I've used my life to do that. Yeah. You know, if, if Stuart was still with us today, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be focusing on me. I'd be focusing on whatever we were doing as a unit, as a group, and that's because that's how I am. But f- because I don't have that anymore, and I don't want to do it with another band, organization, group of people, uh, I, 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 
I, I, there was nothing left to me, but I, th- I feel that I'm much better prepared and qualified to do it now. Hmm. I mean, one of the big things that goes through all of this is, is my vocal, my singing. Now, when I started with Big Country, you know, I was quite happy to do backing vocals because I kind of did that with On The Air, and that was my thing, that was my bag. I like to harmonize with people. And when, when we got through the crossing and started looking at Steel Town, I was adding a little bit more stuff and recordings to backing vocals because um, most of the backing vocals on the crossing were Stuart. And I kind of thought, that's okay because they're kind of his songs. I, I walked into this, but if it was going to be more of a band, it's got to kind of sound like more than one person. And as the albums and the touring went, uh, I found both myself and Stuart becoming a lot more confident about our vocals. I used to tailor my voice so it really curled around Stuart's vocal mm-hmm. so that they worked in parallel well. And I knew his inflections. I had to sort of learn about how he contorted his mouth to do some you know, particular words because there's no point in him sort of espousing a word with a, which had a kind of very different way of speaking and I did the same word with my natural tongue because they wouldn't work. They wouldn't gel together. And like instruments, they need to gel together. So I would study how he would sing things and I would then curl my mouth around. It's not a very nice sort of thing to say, but I uh, <laughs> put my mouth into the shape that made that work. And uh, something that we just sort of, we, we we got really good at it by the time we got to um, the Buffalo Skinners, I think, and particularly live. You know, there's some live performances that I really enjoy listening to vocally. That um, just I just thought, wow, that just that's that just seeps into the ear oh, yeah. so well. And uh, you know, and I got very very proud of the fact that we kind of developed that over that period of time, but. Um, it wasn't until um, we were charged to doing some B-sides on one album, I can't remember. We went into a studio in um, the mid- Middle England and we were doing these cover versions and we decided to do um, the, the song that Bob Height sings, uh, On the Road Again. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, we all kind of went, Stuart, this is not a song for you. But he wanted to do the track, so he said, Go on and turn. I said, what? Me? Sing a lead vocal? <laughs> and uh, they, they kind of kicked me into the studio and I had to do it. And I did it. And, and my, my voice register very much suited Bob Heights. It was, it was kind of the same kind of clarity to, to, yep. to I did it and I kind of went wow I can do it so <laughs> but, and 
those are my sort of pigeon steps ways of kind of increasing my own sort of validity in certain sections of, of a band's domain. And, you know, when I came to start doing The Great Unknown, when I was really then on the spot to do my own vocal and stuff like that, I really worked really hard on it. But what's really cracked my singing for me, I mean, obviously other people will have to judge, is when um, Bruce and Mark and I did BBW. Because um, we wanted to do something that was really kind of the three of us. So there would be songs that I kind of predominantly wrote that I would sing and sing with Bruce. Now, we had this guy who was an absolutely lovely guy. Um, He was Joe Brown. Are you familiar with Joe Brown, the old 60s? Yes, I am. Yeah. In fact, I saw him uh, live at one point in London. Yeah. Thanks to Ian Grant. He he allowed me to come see him with him. Okay. Well, it was his son who came to produce produce that uh, um, the BBW stuff again. Oh, great. Ian Grant put all that together. Uh, obviously because of his association. And um, we turned up at uh, Joe Brown's house in the Cotswolds or the middle of England somewhere. Absolutely beautiful place. Walking to this house of this absolute legend of a person. And, you know, to be invited into his house and to be invited to sit at his table to eat, to meet the rest of his family, of who his daughter Sam Brown was a huge, huge singer for me as well. Um, but um, her, her her career has been sort of derailed because of um, problems with her throat. Mm. But, you know, what a brilliant family. And um, he, uh, his son, I'm trying to remember his name. I've got his name somewhere. I'm getting really bad with names in my old age. <laughs> I, I have the same problem. Um, Don't go I find his name. But um, he, um, we were producing, he was producing us at his the, the studio at their house. And when he came to do the vocals... Um, I said to him, can you work me really hard? Could you really make me work hard to get these vocals? Because I really want to sort of prove to myself that I can do this. And for about four hours, I was doing the vocals on this song. And there was points where I wanted to cry. I was singing to the point where I was hurting myself. But I wouldn't stop. I kept on doing it, taking advice, doing it. And then when I sat back and listened to the vocal I did the day before, the next day, I just felt proud. I was I was big enough to push myself into a direction that maybe really I shouldn't have done, but I was so proud of myself. My vocals on the BBW recordings, I was, uh, I couldn't barely sort of recognize myself, to be honest, because I was 
you know, when they say you find your own feet or you find your own voice, well, I didn't really, I never thought I had a voice because I'm so soft-spoken. And, you know, to be a really good singer, you've got to have, a, you know, a good loud voice with a good set of lungs. And I don't, didn't, never thought I could sort of get there. But that session really kind of put me on that stage with vocals. And uh, so when it came to doing my vocals for my time, not a problem. I was just, you know, and the, and the stuff I did on BB, uh, on uh, Dogs or Gods as well. I mean, I had no worries about doing the vocals because I, I had that confidence. And uh, I've only got Joe Brown's son to thank for that. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, I, the first time I heard you sing a lead was that your song World on Fire. Yes. Um, which was a B-side. It, does that predate some of these or was the, yes. or did that come after? Well, again, I think it was kind of back to, you know, b-side days which yeah. you know uh that's a great little song well because because we were so tough on ourselves in terms of what we thought should go on albums you know a lot of stuff got sort of poo-pooed by all of us and some songs you know we spent a lot of time trying to get them to where we thought their potential was but when it came to b-sides Stuart couldn't be asked you know he when he writes he writes and whatever he writes for that's what it is so to say, oh, let's just write another couple of songs for B-sides, he wasn't that interested in. Right. Uh, which gave us, gave us room. It gave myself room to do some stuff. Bruce, uh, I mean, Bruce was always coming up with musical ideas to the point where it got boring. <laughs> <laughs> but for me to be able to present a song that we could use was something that I'd never done, and I was so nervous. But what was more nerve-wracking for me, rather than just sort of singing it, was actually getting Stuart to play guitar on it. give him a song and give him a set of chords and give him the patterns and blah 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 and get him to do it it really exposed something that I don't think anybody ever saw how unconfident he was as a musician wow see he was expected of us we came from that kind of background he loved that but he couldn't do that himself mm. and that was a weird thing to learn about him but which for me, for me and for the rest of us, it, it made him human. You know, he he was a genius, but even some geniuses have slight flaws. But that's why he was never a muso musician because he wasn't ever a muso musician. He's somebody who played chords in a way that he formulated over a long period of time, wrote songs around those formulations, and performed them brilliantly. But when it came to sort of playing other people's songs. He learnt in the same way as we did. And by the time he was hitting the stage with um, um, uh, Lewis, piano player, at uh, one of these concerts that he did. And he was oh, playing, yeah, Jerry Lee Lewis. Yeah. Jerry Lee Lewis, and he was playing alongside uh, uh, 
uh, Dave Davis and stuff. He's he was only able to do that because of his understanding of musicianship that he kind of learned from myself and Mark. Wow. So that's really we, interesting. We needed each other really to, to develop what we needed, and a lot of that kind of stuff, I suppose, hasn't really been talked about because. People didn't see the band in that particular light. But, yeah, that's, that's real nuts and bolts of who we were. And we, we learned from each other. As much as I learned guitar stylization, he learned musicianship. So when he played guitar on my track, World on Fire, it really kind of, yeah, we, we all learned stuff from that point of view. And uh, I, was, I was really sort of pleased to hear something that I'd written and I'd sung on on a recording and I was well chuffed. I remember playing it to my mum and thinking, Mom, listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when it came out, I thought, Tony's singing lead on this. This is, this is great. Yeah. So, but I think that's, but that's why the band works because we grew up together. Yeah. Nothing was imposed on anybody at any specific time, apart from the very beginning. But Stuart had everything to prove right at the beginning because he was made to feel deficient himself because you know when this when he broke away from the skids virgin kept jobson they ditched stewart so that couldn't have been a very good feeling for him i know how i would feel for shit yeah yeah so but he had to then prove himself and he did it and we supported him doing that and uh and then we supported each other through our you know everything else that we needed to develop to become the sort of musicians and writers that we became well, that's what's so interesting, I think, about the template of big country is that it that it seems to so rarely work where you have you know two guys or however many guys brought in who are session guys more or less, and to fit in with the principal songwriter in in the beginning, usually that that might work sonically, but it doesn't really gel as a cohesive band. And what you guys did, which was which made you so unique, is you did have that chemistry that you had that. Muso side of you and Mark, and it meshed so well with the more rawness of, I guess, of Stuart and Bruce. And uh, yeah, and, and as you were talking about your your background vocals meshing with Stuart, I mean, I think those that interplay is just as much a part of the big country sound as the quote unquote bagpipe guitars or Mark's militaristic style of drumming or whatever you want to say. It all just meshed together so well. Well, I mean, t- two things spring to mind from your comment there. One, I think. And even to this day, Bruce never got the recognition he really deserved because of his guitar contributions. Because you know, he was a wild animal maverick, you know, who it, 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 his 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 compulsion to guitaring was you know, prehistoric. Mm. It's just pure. I'm going to do this, and he does it, and it sounds good. There's no idea of format, musicality, technique, style, anything. It's just what he does, and it. And it's brilliant. And I think Stuart bounced off, off him a lot more than people uh, give him credit for. Yeah. Which is why he was so unique and which is why he was such a... I mean, a lot of people, I'm sure, back in those days thought, well, why is Stuart teaming up with somebody like Bruce? Who's, you know, obviously a lot younger than him and, you know, his, uh, could be seen as his minion in that way. Because Bruce had a lot to offer Stuart. Mm. And I really feel that, and you know, and I know that when uh, when we were referring to doing the the tribute stuff, uh, the twenty fifth anniversary, when we just did the between the three of us, the way that Bruce kind of meshed the important parts of songs into one guitar part, that doesn't happen because you know 
of any great musical technique. That comes out of just sheer gut reaction to what needs doing. And Bruce worked so hard at doing that. Mm. And, you know, I can't ever give him enough praise for, you know, that particular point in time, but also his, his contributions. You know, the first time in a recording studio, you, know, you can sort of imagine Steve Lillywhite sort of thinking, yeah, you're going to listen to Stuart's guitar, blah, 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 blah. So what's coming up next with this young boy? And all of a sudden, Steve's getting really excited because this guy's coming up with stuff that, you know, it's just, it's just guttural, it's raw. Mm. And, uh, you know, that's, that's all part of the chemistry, I think. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people have seen that just with what Bruce has done, you know, with Big Country over the past, you know, ten years, yeah. and and it's his guitar playing has really come to the forefront. I mean, they played Steel Town in its entirety, they, they played The Seer in its entirety, and it sounded great. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think that really, uh, you know, people are coming around to understanding how important he was. So that's great. Yeah, and and he deserves that praise and he deserves that credit, and I, I for one would never ever sort of. I would, I would, you know, have words with people who, you know, would insist that he was always under in Stuart's shadow. Uh, no, I wouldn't. I won't take that. I won't have that. That's great. Well, let me ask you this. This is um, uh, this is a big question that gets bantered about with big country fans quite often. Oh, by the way, before you go any further, it's sure. Pete Brown. Joe, oh. Joe Brown's son is Pete Brown. <laughs> okay, got it, got it. Thank you, thank yeah. you. Okay, um, the, one of the big questions about Big Country that people always ask, and they say, well, this is kind of the, the turning point. They could have been up here, but because they didn't do this, maybe that was a, was something that hurt their career. And that's the appearance at Live Aid or the lack of appearance at Live Aid. Is, cool. that, is that something that, that you look back on and, and regret that that didn't happen? I mean, I'm, I'm sure you guys would have loved to play there, so that's obvious, but... Do you think that really had any sort of a uh, huge impact on your career or how do you look at that missed opportunity? Uh, I guess you could say. Uh, I'm mixed because number one, I can't remember the full reason why we didn't get to play. I know that it, we were kind of between tours at that time. I know that they said that they thought you had broken up. That's what Bob Geldof is. Well, that's well. That's I think that was just maybe a convenient sort of excusey, showbizy thing to say. Okay, yeah. I mean, I I, I I I was having a bit of a soiree at my house. I think a couple of nights before the occasion, and I got this phone call through from Bob saying, you know, would you guys be up for playing? And I said, yeah, but I, I, we're all sort of all over the place at the moment. So if we construed that as the band had broken up, then possibly that was my fault but you know we would have loved to have been there which is why we insisted on actually being there yeah uh, the fact that we didn't get a, a a gig slot yeah that was kind of well i mean you could look at it from two points of view the fact that we would have loved to have been part of the proceedings or as maybe some groups took advantage of the exposure that was to be had um that wouldn't have interested us but to be to to be able to be one of the flagship bands which was representing rock music at the time, I think that would have meant a lot more for us to to have been performing. Yeah. Um, I honestly can't remember, you know, any specific reason why we weren't playing or we weren't together at the time. But I mean, we all got together to be there, 
So why it didn't happen, I really can't remember. Yeah, that was so I, strange to me that you yeah. guys were actually on the stage but didn't yeah. play. It's odd. Well, I remember being sort of right at the back uh, of the melee before the finale. And uh, I was standing uh, next to Mark and Stuart was just behind me, I think. And I said to him, come on, oh, fuck this. We need to be seen that we were here as part of this if we, if we weren't seen for playing. So I literally dragged them all. We went to... Uh, barge my way through to the front <laughs> and uh and i don't know i just stood there and, and and my only thought was i really hope my mum sees me as being part of this oh that's great and uh and that was it and we just stood there and we sang along and blah 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 you know but you know we were there so we could have played why why i mean i'm sure that somebody like ian grant would probably have the uh, the finite reason why it didn't happen, but I, I simply can't remember. It, but I just remember being there. I'm, I remember being so proud to be there. And then every year when an anniversary comes up, they, there's this particular photograph which is a banner photograph which is is in every newspaper, and it's got me there standing next to Daltrey and Bob. Mm. And, uh, it's yep. it's a proud moment for me, you know. That's great. But once again, it's kind of go. Oh, people look at the paper and say, "Oh, look, it's Bob and there's Adam and there's up." Who's that? <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people do not say that, though. Maybe yeah. that's why she called my album. Who's that? <laughs> Who's that in it? Yeah. <laughs> Well, and one other thing about Live Aid, this is the last thing I'll ask about it, but there's also been talk about rumors that Stuart was going to perform with you too, but it didn't happen. Do you know if that was actually something that was considered or that was in the works or what the deal is with that? I really wouldn't have a clue if that was, if that was something that somebody was mooching. I mean, I would imagine that people would have suggested that because that happened once. Um, it was at the Hammersmith Palais, as it was then. And um, we were supporting you two that night. And um, at the towards the end of the show, um, I seem to remember that Bono got Stuart and um, Mike Peters to come up and sing a song with him. And I remember sort of watching the crowd. I was really proud to see Stuart standing up there with Bono, giving it stuff. And he really looked like he was enjoying himself. So possibly that might have been muted from that point of view. Okay. But considering how it all kind of ended up for you to maybe that that somebody decided not because you know you two sort of took their moment and really never looked back and you know fair play to them yeah you know they were fantastic on the day you know between them and queen they made it you know the most triumphant aspect of the whole point of doing it as far as i was concerned and those two bands shone like stars great awesome nice yeah, on the subject of uh, what could have been and uh, making it after Live Aid, your next album was Peace in Our Time. Yeah. We, just, we just spent 10 hours dissecting that album and the circumstances around <laughs> it. <laughs> so, he's, so, not, he's not kidding, 10 hours, yeah. yeah. We did, yeah. And uh, obviously one of the interesting things that happened there was uh, the attempt at the new sound, the attempt to work with uh, Peter Wolf to break America. Yeah. And one of the things we uh, got right after that discussion were the comments you made on the bulletin board as you were listening through all the albums in the mid-2000s. And you uh, sort of made your comments and went through it. And uh, you had some interesting ones about Peace in Our Time uh, and about uh, our quote-unquote megalomaniac producer. <laughs> <laughs> Here we have the... Just bring up my solicitor, make sure I'm not going to yes. say it. <laughs> 
Three Sad Times was two things for me. Yeah. One, it was, as I said earlier, it was my LA experience. Yeah. I just loved it. To me, that was, that's what the band should have been doing, the place where the band should have been doing it. And it was all, it was any kind of preconception I had about a band on the ascent. The whole sort of LA thing was just sensational. The actual experience of recording was, well, it was a, it was disappointing. It was debilitating. Mm. We were we 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 were with a brand new record company who had ideas and aspirations. Um, a lot of the 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 sort of groundwork in the preparation for the for the recording, not not the songs, but the recordings, were kind of predominantly sort of something that Stuart and Ian kind of engaged, because I think we were signed to a, a, a label called Fox, who were kind of a bit of a newish label anyway, and a little bit directionless. I'm, or maybe I'm getting confused with, with another label. Fox anyway. was uh, Skinner's, wasn't it? Skinner's, right. So I think, uh, I think it was Reprise in America so for a piece was, of time. Yeah. Okay, so as a whole bunch of new people who were getting involved and um you know and we had to prove ourselves and i think stuart realized he had to prove himself in a particular way uh when we started recording i think we were all a bit culture shocked by peter wall's approach to recording i mean i think the first thing which made us feel uneasy was you don't touch or fuck with Mark Brzezicki's kit. You know, Mark Brzezicki is a drummer. He knows his kit. He knows his kit yeah. better than anybody ever knew about assembling a drum kit. And all of a sudden, this man was taking nuts and bolts and filling every crevice with cotton wool. And you, know, you just saw Mark's face die oh, no. in front of our eyes. And, you know, it, it, this was such an alien sort of concept in terms of a band like us going into a studio to to be really vibed up and to go and record, and all of a sudden the the kit's been muffled to a state of inner deafness, and and then next minute, you know, after a guitar, a couple of guitar tracks are put down, the guitar tracks have been put through this horrendous electronic machine at the time called a synclavier. <laughs> the guitar parts are being played by Peter Wolf. We're laughing so hard because Bruce had a similar story about this. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, you're listening to a guitar that's got one string pinging on the hard left and another string pinging on the hard right, and then the whole chord's just going everywhere and sounding everything except like a guitar. <laughs> and it's, but <laughs> this is why I've got to be careful. The only thing that he didn't mess with was the bass because he thought the bass was groovy. <laughs> <laughs> Now I remember <laughs> I remember recording the bass line to King of Emotion the night before we I I did that track I just nearly was going to say the night before I cut that track I was uh, <laughs> I was uh, over in a bar in the San Fernando Valley and was just listening to and grooving to this sort of house band and the bass player of this band was this very diminutive little black guy and with this white precision. And I swear, throughout the whole set, he had his eyes closed, facing the ceiling with his teeth full beam, playing his bass. <laughs> and every string he pushed, his body would move. And, you know, I just kind of thought, man, this is awesome. 
this man is feeling everything he plays and being a bass player I kind of connected it anyway so when we came to do King of Emotion I did the same thing <laughs> that's great I put on some really dark glasses and I just smiled <laughs> and every slide I just my body just went with it <laughs> like, man that's so cool that's so black that's so cool <laughs> and I just oh, oh, and I said this guy's a fucking idiot <laughs> <laughs> You know, this, that was the shepherd's bush in me coming out then, and oh. it was pretty. It oh, just wasn't God. pretty. And I kind of just, the, and the, whole, the whole of the recording, it, 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 we, I, I never sort of saw, or I've heard of other bands going into studios and being strained with, you know, stuff like that. But I think that was our first experience of it. But when we finished recording, you know, we we had to be somewhere near satisfied with the recording because otherwise it wouldn't have happened. But then they decided to get somebody else to mix it in another studio and we didn't get to go. Wow. This really kind of, it, 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 it made us sort of feel weird. So, and then the next thing we had to do is we had to go to the record company to listen to a playback. And rather than sitting down and watching a bunch of people vibe out about what was going on, it was deathly silence. Mm. And, you know, I think we all felt as though we were in the wrong place. We've just done the wrong thing. And, you know, but the whole vibe of being in L.A. was so good. that You know, I think if it wasn't for our great experience that we had out there, the, the sort of failure of the album in that particular respect, I think we might have kicked off a little bit more. I think we sort of got too L.A.ified. Um, to to make a noise about it, and also because there's a new record company involved, right, you right. Really just mm. make the wrong noises to sort of turn them off. But the album turned them off anyway, so it didn't really go anywhere. Right. And then I think what capped it all is when Ian went and organised the Russian thing. <laughs> 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 yeah, we're going to spend three and a half months recording this album in sunny LA, and then we're going to go and preview it in Moscow. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! And see this guy come over from uh, from America, <laughs> completely going home in Moscow. You know, you think, and, and you know things weren't very good between uh, America and Russia at that time either. And right, right. I was sitting there, you know, feeling very uncomfortable. We had a British uh, record company who's who's um, head of record company. He was Dutch, and. Um, you know, we were f- surrounded by all these people who really didn't have a clue about us. And it was, the whole thing was just, uh, I, I know Stuart was deeply affected by it. I'm sure. Because so all of a sudden we were just put into this playground with all these people who didn't want to play. Yeah. And Steel Town really didn't do what Steel Town should have done, which, you know, it should have been a hard brush sort of version of what we were doing at the time. And given another Lily White or something, we could have done that, and it would have been acceptable in America. Mm. But Reprise got cold feet and pulled the whole damn thing. Mm-hmm. And it's always been so ironic that that they tried to make it a more Americanized sound, and it ended up sort of alienating your American fans as well as other fans because yeah. of the sound, which has always been strange. But and you can imagine what you know we felt like at the time. We were just completely dumbfounded by it, and it was it was upsetting. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and it had a bearing of what we would think about doing next. And, you know, that was, that was, that was tough. Those, those sort of middle albums were tough to deal with because of the pressures 
that we had laid upon us. I mean, we had this, a, a different thing, but the same scenario with um, Why the Long Face. Mm. Not, not, not Why the Long Face, the one before that. No Place Like Home? No Place Like Home. Well, the, uh, the melody, there was a review in Melody Maker for that album. No Place Like Home. Review. No Place Like the Bin. <laughs> I remember reading that. Yes, that's awful. Okay. Now, and to be honest, I think we all kind of sympathize with that because the strain of making that record with people who didn't like us was horrendous. Mm. You know, we, we had A&R people at um, Polydor, Polygram or whoever we were at the time, Polydor, uh, and they didn't like us. And every time they came to the studio, they just flattened us. Mm. So we were then making a record, and we thought, well, why are we making this record? Because no, nobody else seems to... And you know at that stage of your career that if your record company are not going to get behind you, it's going nowhere, and then you don't feel like making the album. Right. That's exactly what happened with that as well. So, you know, those middle albums, were, they had good songs, but they, they had the wrong approach by the people who were pulling the purse strings. Yeah, and uh, and most of the fans will be quick to say that uh, you actually had a lot of great songs for Prisoner Time, and I'm thinking of the REL oh. tapes, which uh, sounded sensational, but they but but they weren't used. You're absolutely right, Swain, because the, the 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 demos that we did were fantastic, really uplifting. I, I mean, I remember when we first um, we were putting the track Prisoner Time together. I was playing a bass line that I just thought was massive. It was massive. And, you know, I remember I just played it for about 10 minutes before the band started one day. Wow. And it was that big. It was that kind of massive piece of music that was coming. And then when the guitars come in with all the echo repeats and stuff, it was just huge. And, and by the time it hit the album, it was just weak. Yeah. There was, there was nothing... Of of any bollocks at all to it, and it was it was, it was depressing. It's such a shame because I think a lot of those. Um, my personal opinion is a lot of those REL tapes could have been demos. Could have ended up being the best thing you guys ever <laughs> ever did. Definitely. I mean, Christmas Island and things like that are just unbelievably epic. Over the borders is, is another one. I mean, incredible songs. It's 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 mind numbing how someone mm. could hear those and think, oh, this is not the direction you want to go it's just but i, I know that's the way the industry works but, actually you know, yeah. mentioned that song now over the border it, it was oh it's one of the greatest songs you guys ever composed i think it's principally my song that's right that's right i remember that I, I i i kind of remember wanting to do a homage to zeppelin oh wow. and you know that kind of dragged Yep, yep. I just wanked myself playing that at home. That, <laughs> by the time the band got to play it, it was just like, you know. And when put, Stuart put the kind of the the, the, the lyrical content on top, oh, so gorgeous. I just, 
me, I, I kind of saw that sort of doing steel town type of things, and I was it was just depressing. Yeah, yeah. it's all wasted, all wasted. Ugh. Well, we but still it, love them to this day, so it wasn't total, well, total waste. But that's that's the beauty of them being records. They they are there. They might not do the sort of the record company make you lots of money, but in terms of uh, of art, it's there. They're, they're as good as any picture hanging on a wall. Yeah. Exactly, and we still yeah. talk about them. Yeah. Yeah, well, and, and it's my absolute pleasure to recollect this with you today, to be honest. I'm really enjoying this conversation because I'm remembering things that, again, uh, I'm not Sergeant Bilko. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what we'll be. We'll be that for you. <laughs> All right, everybody, that was episode 68 of the Great Divide podcast, our second part of the conversation with Tony Butler. That was fantastic. <laughs> Time just flew. We really enjoyed this conversation, and I'm glad to hear that uh, Tony did too. So, yeah, that's it. Look forward to episode 69 soon. We probably won't uh, delay that too long. And uh, let us know what you think. Leave your comments on Facebook, the Great Divide Facebook group. And uh, let Tony know what you think too. See you soon. The only thing that he didn't mess with was the bass, because he thought the bass was groovy. <laughs> <laughs>